This is the seminar on Free Will Baptist identity in the 20th century, 1900s. So uh, if you were looking for something else, now's the time to go. Um, I'm Charles Cook, and Dave Lytle and I edited uh, this book, Arminian Baptist, a biographical history of Free Will Baptist. And we contributed to the overview sections to describe different time periods in our movement. And then we each wrote uh, three or four chapters. And we've got lots of other great people that helped us uh, do that, including Tim Eaton, who's in here, um, and some other folks. So if you haven't read that book, uh, you might want to check it out. So <clears throat> we, uh, we kind of tracked our history from the English General Baptist up to about 2000. We kind of trail off about the 1980s. Uh, so we, we tell that story and we tell it through uh, the biographies of key people that were very influential uh, in, in our history. So uh, this little seminar is going to be talking about the 20th century. And so we were trying to think about how to do this and make it interesting. And uh, some of you I know are here for Dave's and didn't want to do exactly the same type of thing he did. So Dave's going to ask some questions and I'm going to answer those questions. And um, I do want to give this disclaimer up first or up front. A couple of people we'll talk about, especially in the beginning, um, I'm going to be really enthusiastic about it. That doesn't mean I agree with what they were saying. Okay? Do not take enthusiasm in explaining what they believed as agreement with what they believed. Um, I'm a teacher, and I think any teacher when you're teaching and trying to share somebody's ideas, you know, you've got to be enthusiastic to keep your students engaged. So this doesn't mean I agree with what they said. All right, so I do want to give that disclaimer to start. So Dave, go ahead and throw the okay. first one out. So the first question is, you may know, the National Association was founded in 1935. Uh, so my question for Charles is, what are some of the key players and important voices uh, that predate that founding of the National Association? Uh, who are the people kind of shaping uh, who Free Will Baptists were before 1935? Okay, so the best way to think about this, or not the best, but a helpful way to think about this is, as we most of you in this room probably know, You've got the Randall Movement, and I'm just going to have to assume, since we're starting the 20th century, you know about that. We've got the Randall Movement in the north. We've got the Palmer Movement in the south. And then we have some figures that actually, and uh, I'll talk about one guy in a minute who's really important, that actually bridged those two worlds and is really, really important guy. Uh, but let's start with the Randall Movement uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. It's a vibrant movement. It's got theological schools. It's got colleges. It's... Um, has a lot of cultural influence in the Northeast. In fact, the more we study now, the more something Dave and I, the more we start realizing like, whoa, these guys had their hands in all kinds of political things going on in the North. And a lot of this had to do with they were strong abolitionists, um, extremely strong, and they were extremely committed to this. The first president of Bates College, a college in Maine, was great uh, acquaintance of Frederick Douglass. He helped shepherd people through the Underground Railroad. And there's a story of Frederick Douglass comes uh, to Maine. And of course, you know, there were people who wanted to preserve the Union, but they were not at all for racial equality. The president of Bates, he was, for, he was for what we would call today racial equality, not just keeping the Union together. And Frederick Douglass visited him, and there's this great story about how they, wouldn't, they weren't going to feed Frederick Douglass, this place that these Free Baptist guys went to. And the president of Bates challenged the owner to a fight. And was like, you will beat this guy like he is. So if you think like the 20th century is where fighting free will bad to start, you're wrong. It's way before that, um, literally. So uh, they are huge abolitionists, and the North wins the war, and that ups the cultural 
power of Free Will Baptist ministers in the Northeast because these radical ideas, even in the North, after the Civil War, people are going, hey, they were right. We should have, we should have viewed this, you know, this way. And so when you start digging into that, you start just finding like, whoa, these guys, there are people you know, in the U.S. government that are coming from Free Will Baptist homes and just a lot of cultural power. So as Bates College, Cobb Divinity School in Maine, as they grow, uh, there's this recognized need, not just among Free Will Baptists and others, that, okay, we were just a frontier nation 100 years ago. And so in theological education, they started saying, we need to go to Germany, and we need to go to Germany, and we need to study. And uh, so Charles Hodge at Princeton, he goes in the 1820s. You think about what's going on in America in the 1820s. He goes in the 1820s. And he studies there, and, uh, and he writes back, and he says, okay, they're, they're academics in biblical languages and other societies you know, uh, around Israel at that time is far superior than anything you can get to America in the 1820s. But Hodge writes back, and he says, but this theology is really like, there's nothing else you're going to get for him other than advanced language. And he studies with a guy, and I don't want to get too sidetracked on this, but he studies with a guy, um, T-H-O-L-U-C-K, I don't actually know how you pronounce it, but he studies with Tholuck, I'm going to call him that, and, and Hodge writes about this experience, and Tholuck is kind of seen as a safe guy back in America because he doesn't view the Bible rationalistically, you know, with rationalism. He's not trying to pick the Bible apart. He's not trying to say that, oh, this stuff's, uh, you can't trust this history, and this makes no sense, and this new evolutionary idea is you've got you've to submit the Bible to that. He doesn't really believe in that. But his answer to that is to say, we need to focus on religious feeling and religious experience. And so at first, some of these guys, like Hodge, they say, hey, he, you can actually study with him and learn some things, and like, he's not going to be ugly to you. And he, and, uh, but later, Hodge is going to say, I don't know, like, this, isn't, this foundation is still shaky. Why did I say that? Because a guy named Benjamin Francis Hayes, who taught at Bates College for 40 years, and then uh, also taught in the Divinity School for 15 to 20 years. He goes and studies with this same guy 30, 40 years later in Germany. And uh, they hit it off. And he was a great, he was a great student, apparently. Benjamin uh, Francis Hayes was. And he and this German scholar become great friends. And Benjamin Francis Hayes, the Free Will Baptist, becomes friends with a guy who's going to become the, uh, what we might call the Prime Minister of Germany later. Like, so he, he's moving high circles. And his wife goes with him who's very influential in the missions movement among the Northern Free Will Baptists, and they become friends. And this guy comes back, and he, uh, he's teaching at Bates, and in 1904-05, he gets really sick, and his son says, we need to write a memoir about him, and they write this memoir, and in this memoir, they, they have their father tell how he embraced the new theology and the new thought, and how he began teaching that to Free Will Baptists in that area, and at the end of the memoir, they include letters from leading Free Will Baptists, from some ministers, presidents of college, and this constant theme comes up of, he helped us embrace the new, the new way, the new teaching. And, all, and, and he outlines in there, like, he makes his case for evolution, why that's okay. He makes his case for why this isn't God actually speaking the Bible. These are people that are just doing the best they can to explain God in their own terms. So when you run into people that are being slaughtered, we don't have to worry about giving a defense for that anymore because that wasn't even God. Like, that's just people trying to talk about God. So he is, he's promoting this, and when he dies, they, people are writing in saying, he, he helped us deal with these new ideas and believe this and, and all this stuff. And 
So that's going on when the merger happens. Like this whole change is in the Northeast is starting to occur. Tim Eaton's family out in the West, the little bit of this starts coming back, they are like, no. Now most Rubaths don't even know about this because they're out in Oklahoma trying to survive and in Missouri and just make it on farms and their connections or their local association, like just the guys around them. But there are a few guys that are a part of this bigger picture that they're getting wind like, man, what is going on with our movement? You know, kind of where this random movement has started. It, this is bad, this is bad news. There's like a real shift occurring. And we've known that for a while. So if you go back and read older things or written when our denomination first started, they're going to talk a little more enthusiastically about what was going on in the Northeast um, when, when they merged with Northern Baptists and they're going to lament the colleges. And we still do that. But what's happened is we've dug more and more into the story. That's become more complicated. And it's realized like, whoa, like, yeah, we are sad for a lot of things that we missed. But there's more of a story developing of like, but there were changes that were happening and, and they were maybe deeper than we thought with you know what was going on so that's one thing going on in the northeast in the south you've got the palmer movement and so the palmer movement you know tell that story really quickly so paul palmer comes and the calvinist uh they um a number of those churches switch and so they have to overcome that and then palmer movement, north carolina they overcome that and they begin to spread west with the frontier and then the campbellites uh church of christ out from tennessee they're very prominent there church of christ really make inroads into free will baptist and so that's kind of a institutional setback with the story then the civil war happens and the south is in a wreck and so you know not lots of people are going to college they're just trying to figure out how are we going to start this new economy and so free baptist preachers are just you know the people they're working with don't have a lot of money and they don't have a lot of stuff and so institutionally these things uh, kind of keep the institutions from developing. And then uh, things get a little bit better in the American South, especially in North Carolina. Tobacco starts making a lot of money in North Carolina and, uh, and South Carolina where my mom's from. And so they start getting some cash in their hand and some of the ministers start saying, man, we're like, some of our students are going to colleges now and they're going off and they're doing stuff. And like, we have no infrastructure to keep people within our movement. Like they move away and we lose them. Like we're not connected in any kind of way to help each other. And so in the Palmer movement, uh, a guy that I write about, E.L. St. Clair, he starts really pushing hard um, that, hey, we need to unify people in the South. We need to get ministers on the same page. We need to start making educational strides. And uh, he has this beautiful article St. Clair wrote where he said, man, like our, our preachers, um, they're just, they're bivocational and they know they're ignorant and they wear this ignorance and they, it hurts like it, it, it internally. He's like, these guys I know, it hurts them that they're so ignorant and that they struggle with conversing with people that are getting this new education in the South. And so St. Clair says, we gotta help our preachers be able to communicate with more people and he does this in a very loving way like not looking down his nose at all like he's like this is just how can we help them and so st Clair, uh he begins to do this so here's what happens in the north there's this guy named thomas peden that dr pick has written about and helped us know a lot more about him and matt pinson uh has written about him a little bit as well peden is in ohio and he it seems like it seems like Peden, he, he definitely has major misgivings about what the Northeast leadership is doing among Free Will Baptists. 
maybe a little indication that he even theologically was starting to get nervous about what was going on. And Peden does not like where it's headed. In the South, they finally get enough money to start a, a, a seminary, and it was basically a primary school and a high school with a theological department where you could train guys who were going to the ministry. So that's what it was. And they finally get up the funds to do this, and they, they, they have connected with Thomas Pete, and they say, dude, come down from the north and help us. Like, help us start teaching theology and educating our ministers and doing this. And he comes down, and he's not embraced the new theology going on. He, he, he is committed to this Butler-Dunn theology, and I can't get into all this, but that is a more traditional approach to things. That's not influenced. It may be influenced by Finneyism, and again, I can't get into what all that means, but he's, he's influenced by popular Arminianism, Butler and Dunn might have been, but they were not influenced by this evolutionary thought, rationalistic thought, like that's not what's defining it. So Peden comes down, he's committed to the older Randall version of theology. And he hooks up with these guys in North Carolina, and basically through his hard work, he almost single-handedly keeps this seminary going. And he's one of these guys that who knows, like financially and health-wise, and how much he gave up to really give us the seeds of, of, of education that, that continue today. So he's doing that. The other thing he believes in is like, hey, I've, and he was real active in the associational work of the North. He's like, I'm, I'm going to help these Southern Free Will Baptists learn how to start working together. And so he starts a general conference in the South. And guys like J.L. Welch, Welch College, he's a young guy. He's exactly the kind of guy St. Clair was worried about. Inquisitive, uh, wants to learn even more, not going to be satisfied with just a pat answer. He's not going to believe it just because his preacher told him. Like, he's going to want to dig in. And Welch connects with these guys. And Welch, uh, through this Peden conference, these guys throughout the South start meeting each other. And there's not a lot of them, but they're men and women. And they're committed to, hey, we need to get missions going. We need to get theological education going. And we need to get uh, a better job explaining, like, this is what we believe. And a big thing driving that is their concern for, like, we, we want to have our movement, movement continue. And we're afraid without these things, it's going to be hindered for doing that. So Peden is a guy that connects probably what most in this room would believe is the best of the northern movement with this energy that's happening in the south because they finally have reached a point in the Free Baptist story that they can start expanding institutionally. He brings the best of the north and helps the, the south, as how I view it, start these, um, start these endeavors. So uh, one other thing that's interesting uh, to note, there is in the northeast a pushback um, to what is happening. And some of that heads in an orthodox direction, like with Thomas Peden. There's also, and I call it proto-Pentecostalism, there's also a response to this rationalistic thinking that, um, this is my opinion here, goes way too deep into like just your own personal experience and stuff. And there's a guy, Frank Sanderson, you can read about him. He was a bright student at Bates. Um, he, Sean, you'll like this, he goes to play baseball in one of the early kind of minor leagues. Uh, this is the 1880s. He, he plays baseball, and uh, he doesn't play long because Maine declares a fast day, and Frank Sanderson, this, this free will Baptist kid, Maine declares, hey, we're going to have a fast on this day, and we don't want you to do um, sporting events or work and stuff like that. We want you to fast. And Frank Sanderson, instead of playing baseball that day, he participates in the fast. And apparently, almost everybody on the team made fun of him. And so Sanderson was like, that's it. I'm done with 
kind of what professional sports are becoming. He's like, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to the ministry. And Sanderson goes to Cobb Divinity School, connected with Bates College, and he doesn't stay long. And he says that the formalism and this new thought, new theology, it, it, that it, the language of cold is making him spiritually cold. And he leaves, and he goes to Pastor Freelbass Church. But then he starts writing things about, hey, I was out doing my, what we might call devotions or meditation, and I heard the trees blowing in the wind, and I heard God saying to me this, and he has this word, he says, said it over and over and over again, and I knew I needed to do this. And he starts, like, the way he starts talking about how God's communicating is through this sort of mystical type stuff, and he starts taking that further and further, and he founded a cult in Maine, that some of the leaders of the Tongues Movement, I think Charles Fox Parham, visited him. And then, of course, Parham in Kansas, the Tongues Movement breaks out, and then it goes to Azusa. They had visited and spent time with him. So, again, this is a Freel Baptist that, for a lot of reasons, we don't extol. But he, he was a guy who was very influential on leaders of the Tongues Movement. And I could give you some other guys that went and actually studied with him. So I still had to say, there's a lot of interesting things to think about, um, definitely about our history, that we just now more and more are rediscovering or discovering for the first time of like, whoa, this is what uh, was happening in the Northeast during this time. So that's going on. Peden helps... Uh, helps get us on like solid footing though because he's not buying into any of this and he wants to do a good work but he doesn't he doesn't want this so um, that's important because when the movement starts education's a big part of it so in 35 like college education you read what they're talking about they wanted a college they wanted a college and they wanted missions but because of what happened in the north um, there were some voices at that moment who they knew, like, we want education, but we want to avoid particular pitfalls that have happened. And I'm not saying there are a lot of people that knew that, but there were a few people in that transition period that that influenced how they thought about education um, and what it would be. Last thing I'd say, when the merger starts, uh, you got the Free Baptist Press in Aden, North Carolina that they're really helping Free Will Baptists connect with each other because people are all of a sudden, this starts in the 1880s, I think, uh, they start the Free Will Baptist, and the Free Will Baptist uh, was a magazine or like newspaper type thing that you could read sermons by the preachers, and all of a sudden, somebody in North Carolina is reading stuff by Welch in Tennessee, and they're inviting him, hey, why don't you come do a revival for us? And so the Free Will Baptist Press in North, Aiden, North Carolina helped connect a lot of these guys. Anyway, I could talk about this all day, so yeah. go to the next. No, I'll just, uh, I'm gonna say this, and I'm gonna ask you another question. I think a lot of what we're, we're trying to do in these uh, seminars, if you, if you were here for mine and now this one, I think what Charles just threw out there was a lot of stuff that needs more. Yes. Yeah, that's right? what I'm so talking about. Yeah. In a lot of ways, what the book is, you know, there, there are uh, chapters on some of these guys, but the book is sort of, hey, we're getting these things started. Um, and, you know, other people have done things in the past, but inviting people to do more digging into some of these figures that we just don't know a whole lot about. Um, hey, before you ask me the next question. Research. So that was, Dave and I did a podcast, and they asked us about, like, the people in the book, and Dave, Dave said, well, part of it was just, we had to go with the people that we've written about, and that we knew other Free Will Baptists could speak intelligently about, because they had studied their stuff. So um, one of the good things about technology is now, you know, if you, if you learn some basic 
historical method for how to do historical writing. Like this Benjamin Franklin Hayes, who finding, finding this stuff about how influential he was and the people that are writing at his death, about how he helped them, I and mean, they used language like he unsettled my theology and then resettled it in the new. All this stuff was found just through digging online through, hey, this guy taught at Cobb. And his son became a leading sociologist at the University of Chicago, which was known for its theological liberalism, and apparently had troubles at the church he was pastoring. I wonder if he got any of this from his dad. Like, that's just what went through my mind. And so then I thought, well, I wonder if I can find what his dad was writing and talking about at the Divinity School at the time. And then lo and behold, you dig deep enough, you can find it online. So yes, like, there's a big, there's a lot of new research that technology has made some of these writings available, because you can find them online if you'll dig long enough to look. So uh, the, the book is biographical, it's, it's a bunch of different biographies, and so along those lines, uh, Charles, who would you say are the major individuals uh, that we need to know about in really forming the National Association in 35? John Welch, uh, and I, I think Pick, in his notes, said he might be working on a bigger work on Welch, do you remember that? I think that may, I think that makes sense. do you know Kevin if that's true? Okay. Um, Pick probably could have like five projects going on right now, uh, which is awesome. Um, I think he has said this. Uh, Welch, again, like he's young, he's driven. He goes to Kofers to study with another guy who was from the Northern Movement who only stayed at Kofers one year and got so discouraged that he left. I don't know what that says about your home church, Dave, but I'm going to move on. Uh, he stays one year and he says, hey, and he's another guy like Peden, he's, he's, he's connected to Peden too a little bit. He's trying to get education going in the South, and he only stays at Covers for like a year, but he has, I think, one student, and it was Welch. Welch moved there. So Welch is like, he, he again, he's, he's wanting to promote education, and he gets connected through Peden's General Conference. He goes to those meetings, and he gets connected, and he helps keep the dream alive uh, for, hey, we can unify in the South. We can help each other. We can start, we can get missions going. We can do this. We can work together. And he's, a, he's one of these voices. You need to know Welch. You need to know him. Pick writes about her and does a great job. You got to know about Lizzie McAdams. Uh, I still, and it's a different era, but Lizzie McAdams led so many people to Christ. And I don't think these are exaggerated numbers. And Tim's family has ties. Lizzie stayed at some of your family's house, right? Some of these meetings. And yeah. yeah. It's not exaggerated. Damon Dodd, again, he's somebody you should look up. He, she, she led, I think, Damon's whole family. whole family to the Lord. There's one little part of Missouri. I, I'm going to get it wrong. Like, she might have led a third of the people in that area to Christ. I'm talking about thousands that went to her meetings and attended these. And so then Lizzie, like, they find out about her in North Carolina somehow. And she goes to North Carolina. And, um, of course, Pick talks about this different era. And I'm not, I'm not trying. I'm just telling you a historical fact. She pastors a church, a couple of churches there, I think, for a while. And uh, so when I, when I worked at the Billy Graham Association, I went to the Gastonia Free Baptist Church. And there was an old guy that I met that told me his father had went to some of her revivals. And he said, you didn't forget them. Like, if you went, I mean, she's preaching Gitch Hell. She's preaching hot and heavy. And like it. So you read about Lizzie. She connects the West with North Carolina, because she goes over there, and part of why she goes over there is because she tries to do mission work, and they want to support her, these folks in North Carolina do, and then that doesn't quite pan out, um, and you can read more about that Pick's thing, and so she stays in North Carolina for a while, and then, uh, and you got to remember when you think about this, there weren't, there was no outlet for women to do ministry, 
There was no WAC. There was no, so these folks like Lizzie that are really committed to the Lord, like they're, they're kind of in some ways on their own, like Larbell Barnard. It's amazing. Like they just were like, I, I should be leading people to Christ. There's no way to help me. I don't have good role models. And she, you know, she just stepped out there and started doing it and ended up being majorly influential. She also did not join in the merger stuff. We don't know how much she knew about it, but in Oklahoma, again, they're, they're way more likely to know about Lizzie than they are about some professor in the Northeast that's changing their theology. And, and it's a great comparison historically to look at like Lizzie's sermons versus what they're preaching in the, in the Northeast or what he's teaching in the college, what these guys are teaching. And it's way different. Um, I mean, it's, you know, it's radically different, really. Go ahead, Tim. Lizzie is closer to Billy Sunday than any of the others. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I, I agree with that. Um, Pop Melvin, some of you know that name. Uh, Henry Melvin goes to Edgemont Church in Durham, and he was able to connect with youth in just a powerful way, and he gets really involved with the Free Will Baptist League, which is kind of our first youth thing. And they do, like, so on Sunday nights at Edgemont, uh, we have a record of one of their meetings. They would, they would gather on Sunday night an hour before the service, and they would assign these kids, like, okay, you're going to do the music, and you're going to do the preaching, and you're going to do the... And, like, they gave them very definitive roles. And so there are people that became ministers because in league meetings, the preacher said, hey, you're going to get up and preach the sermon. You're like, you're going to, for this week, you're going to be the one to preach the sermon. And uh, we can learn from that. Like, I can tell you in my own ministry, like, I've read some things by the league that I have used that I've thought, dude, that tactic of, like, like, sometimes don't ask, just tell them, like, hey, I want you to do this, and we're going to think through together how to do it. I think they were more intentional with the league of, like, we're just going to help you do this. Like, we're not going to just ask you, hey, do you want to do it? We're going to let you do it, and then we're going to see, like, is that a gift that you possess? So they were, I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is Henry Melvin taught people in his sphere how to be intentional about teaching young people and giving them the opportunity to do it. So Henry... He starts pushing hard for, hey, we need, to, we need a college, and we need missions, and he becomes in Durham friends with this guy named Pop Willie, and Pop's from the Christianary Missionary Alliance, and kind of a Methodist influence background, and Pop's already been on the mission field, and he and Billy hit it off in Durham, and they become friends, and he starts telling Pop, like, man, your theology, like, I mean, you know, you're coming out of a certain type of Arminian Methodist type stuff that is really close to what preachers around here are preaching and saying, and you've got a background in missions already, and we need missionaries, and you need to become a free will Baptist. He's like, you need to become one of us and let us send you to the field, and you help show us how it's done. And I know I'm not supposed to preach in here, but, like, you look at Cuba today from Henry having those conversations with Pop and the work today, and, man, Pop Melvin's another guy that he's hugely hugely influential um, in helping North Carolina get real involved in starting the national. Uh, two more guys to tell you. And, the, and this guy's not in the book. And like, so several of these guys I'm telling you here are not in the book because I didn't want to just talk about them. I wanted to throw out some names of other people we need research on. J.C. Griffin, he is really influent. He goes to Aiden Seminary. He's really influential in helping the North Carolina State Convention develop in the, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. He writes articles for 
the Free Will Baptist. He visits churches. He's really committed to the North Carolina Free Will Baptist State Convention, and he's really committed to the national. And so when they have some tensions, like over the treatise, what they're going to do is they flesh some of that out. J.C. Griffin is sort of the North Carolina representative. And then when Tim's people in Missouri start causing trouble over literature, starts as early as the 40s, they start having these problems over, we got Aiden Press really established, but these folks in Missouri, they got the gym, or whatever you Western guys have, the gym, yeah. They got the gym, and the Nationals are going to start using some of their stuff, and the guys in North Carolina start saying, oh, no, 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 we had these agreements with us, what we're going to do. Griffin is the guy that we're all going to like, hopefully, who says, like, let's get in the room and figure this out. Like, let's... Like, we've worked too hard to get a national going to let it fall apart in the first 10 years. Um, Griffin, this, now this is a sad thing. This is why you probably don't know about him. So he was elderly when the split happens in 62. And Griffin signed one of the affidavits on uh, connectional government. And, and in the national where we voted to unseat all the people who signed that affidavit, that same national also dissolved what was kind of a Sunday school board, literature board. They dissolved it because we finally were going to start Randall House. So he technically, in that meeting, had already, his board had dissolved. Um, and they, but then he's one of the guys that they list like, okay, he's no longer a board member. Uh, he has this, it's, it's tragic, and it, but it's also funny. He stands up at the national and he says, you can't kill me twice, you already dissolved my board. Like, you can't, you can't, like, anyway, I think that's funny that he said that um, in a very serious moment, like that's a humorous thing. So, uh, but he's, I'm gonna tell you about him and why, he wrote a lot of articles, so if you understand, like, what are they thinking about racial issues? What are they thinking, which is a hotbed in North Carolina, because in North Carolina, you got folks holding on hard to segregation but you also got civil rights meetings breaking out in black free will Baptist churches, which is another undeveloped thing of like, that's where they're having meetings is in some black free will Baptist churches over like, what, what are we gonna do about this? Griffin's writing about this stuff. Uh, he's committed to solid theology. He believes in the Bible college, but he's also a big supporter of Mount Olive. He's caught in the middle of the whole stuff that's going on. And uh, Billy Melvin and Leroy Fourlines back 2009 when I started doing some interviews with those guys he is the guy that went with the state convention when the split out of 62 Leroy started Dr. Forline started tearing up when I brought his name up he's like that dude wound up with the other side but he's like the encouragement he gave to ministers and the work that he did and the love he had uh, Billy Melvin who Billy I mean he's not afraid to tell you what he thought about all kinds of things he has strong negative feelings towards that split and towards the North Carolina State Convention. But when you say J.C. Griffin, same thing as Brother Fourlines. He starts, oh man, that guy, the work he did and the love he had. And the, so that's a name of like, he's really important to our whole history. And you'll see him like, you'll, like if you've got that little postcard they made of who did the first treaties at Cofers, Griffin's one of the guys there. And he's a lost voice that I think like people need to know about this guy. Like he's he's really important. Last one, E. E. Morris. He's in the book. Uh, he's an interesting guy because he is uh, out there in Arkansas working lumber. You know, at the turn of the century, way more like cowboys than like we are. Like I mean, just if you haven't read this, read about it. He answers the call to preach. 
And they build like a little church, and these guys that help build this church, he shows up and like they're playing poker and fighting and all this stuff. And he preaches the house down, and they get saved, and he loads them in a wagon and takes them to the judge. Like, Tim can tell you some stories about this dude. Like, I mean, he, it's hard with Morris to know what's true and what's fiction because he did do so many things to us that are like, they, I, I, my community would kill me if I did that. I mean, I'm talking about like getting on the radio and naming who's yeah. calling out their like, right down the line. Yeah, reading the license plates off on his radio show of who's at the places they shouldn't have been at. Like thing. Didn't he carry a pistol everywhere he went? Like that is true. That was confirmed everywhere. And so I'd heard this, like this Morris guy that helped start our movement carried a pistol everywhere, uh, which I guess that's coming back in vogue, but that was out of vogue for a while. And I'm like, I was like, why? And then I started finding out about what he's doing. I'm like, no wonder he carried a pistol everywhere he went. But then I read about his life and I'm like, dude, this guy is coming out of the wild. I mean, this is the wild west going on here. He goes and he, he fights in World War One, and he, uh, but he gets saved, a female sort of, she Pentecostal evangelist type lady, I mean, kind of that early vein. He, uh, he, he gets saved. She comes out to one of these lumberjack places that were wild and crazy, and she's out there preaching, and he ends up getting saved. And uh, I don't know if he married a free will Baptist. That's how I forget a little bit. But, he, but he's really important to know. Another reason he's important to know is because he and Dr. Johnson had like some titanic disagreements uh, that we're just now kind of, trying to talk about in a responsible way. And I think like though, and I think the book helps with this. When you read E.E. E. Morris's background and then you read Dr. Johnson's background, you realize like they're coming from two totally different worlds when this thing merges. And you know, you got like the roughneck, kind of crazy dude out west. And you got this guy that's trying to help us be like more refined, dignified, like in a good way, you know, like, hey, you don't want to, you know, just be this hilljack out here. Like, we got to be able to minister this new context. And so these guys have some, some strong disagreements that, uh, but you read the biography and you realize, like, oh, I kind of I understand why. Like, they, they were just two totally different types of people that have helped make us who we are. So E. Morris, J.C. Griffin, Pop Melvin, Lizzie McAdams, John Welch, these are names you definitely need to know. So, yeah. Awesome. And, and uh, several of those names are in the book. A couple, or maybe, yeah, two, two of them aren't, but um, they are kind of referenced in the book, just not complete biographical uh, chapters on them. Speaking of that, uh, one guy that does come up a good bit in the book, and there is, he comes up a lot in biography on Billy Melvin, um, as well as just in denominational life, particularly in the 50s and 60s, is Stan Mooneyham. Uh, Stan Mooneyham, uh, just very influential. Uh, major character, someone that I think has, I didn't know a thing about him until conversations with you, and then you look, oh, pretty pretty influential major figure in our history, uh, especially in that time period. So tell us a little bit about him. He's not in the book. He's one of these people that we want you to study more about, and uh, you will read some information about him in the book, though, because he does come up. Yeah, so the reason he, and again, this is too simplistic, so let me say that up front. Like this is too simplistic of an answer just because we could stay here for hours talking about this. Um, Jack Williams, I think, he, he told me, again, in 2009, some interviews I did with him uh, that I recorded. I recorded these interviews, and he told me, like, he said, okay, so when he goes to work, um, when Jack goes to work for Rufus Coffee, like, 
Mr. Coffee's last year or two. That's when Jack, so this is the late 70s, that, that Jack gets to Nashville to work there. So Jack Williams is coming from out west. He's worked at California Christian. He's got Oklahoma connections. And so Jack Williams comes uh, to work with Rufus Coffee, our executive director. And then quickly, at, quickly after he gets there, Melvin Worthington uh, takes over. And he told me, so, so there's all this tension going on at that time. So I'm kind of fast forwarding and tell you why we don't know about him. Late 70s, early 80s, there's like a lot of identity questions going on. Everybody knows, or a lot of you in this room probably know about the wine issue with Welch. Um, how are we gonna approach public schools? Cause they're, they're changing and we're trying to figure out what's our attitude gonna be towards this. Like, you know, uh, that's going on. There's pastoral authority questions that are going on because in American society, authority's falling apart and people are viewing pastors different. And so guys, like it's, it's it was, I mean, ministry's always hard. And this is hard. A lot of you guys in this room live through this. And you're trying to figure out, like, how do we think about this? And how do we stay true to God's Word? And all this is going on. And so part of that, there was divisions that emerged, like, over new evangelicalism, neo-evangelicalism, fundamentalism. Um, all that's complicated because how movements are at one moment, they change. And so even as you're in some ways identifying maybe you think like okay i i kind of agree with what these folks are saying within a decade that movement may change through other things that come into it so all that's going on and stan had just become a lightning rod he'd worked for billy graham he was a leader at world vision and um world vision overseas is dealing in a totally different world part of that world is world visions doing they're doing aid and that's put it in like in countries that are falling apart where uh you know cambodia um vietnam with the u.s government pulling out and no no aid organizations want to go to vietnam because it's such a disaster none of them want to be associated with what's happening at the end of the vietnam war and stan says world vision is going like hurting people there we're going and but the minute you enter that kind of world, you got other players you're having to deal with, like the World Council of Churches and these different groups. And so Stan's trying to navigate that stuff. And back home, we're saying, like, we're not a part of any of those type of groups, and we don't want to be a part of those groups. And, like, we, so, you know, and you don't have, it's harder, you don't have speed of communication like we have today either. Like, you can't just shoot an email off and, like, okay, explain all this to me. Like, you're trying to navigate through second and third sources, like what's happening? So long story short, Stan becomes so, it's such, he's such a, uh, it's such a complex situation he's dealing with in a complex time that folks are trying to work with here. It just becomes, it, Jack told me, he said it just became like, even though he was doing awesome stuff and he was a free will Baptist, it became like, we can't write about him. Because if we write about him, the letters are gonna start pouring in about, you know, so he, he told me, he said, we just decided like, we're gonna focus on newer guys and we're gonna allow the differences we have, but we're just, not, we're just not gonna write and talk about this, which made us historically, like, like you said, like then people start finding out like, this guy got Contact Magazine going, that you know, our communication way, like he got that going. In my opinion, what Eddie Moody's doing, the executive office, this is exactly what he was promoting and pushing for. Like this church violation thing, he was like, hey, we can use the executive office to help, help these different departments work together to accomplish things. Um, he, believed, he, he got a lot of, so just think contact. Before contact, 
the executive office has very little reach to the average person, or even the average person, because most pastors aren't coming to the national. It's a small group that comes that makes these decisions. Well, all of a sudden you can get contact, and everybody's reading what Stan's opinion is. But what if Stan's opinion is not what Charles Thigpen's opinion is, or Elsie Johnson's opinion is, or uh, uh, an influential pastor's opinion is? So all of a sudden the executive office went like, it's all of a sudden like a major player, and it happened overnight, really. And uh, I did an article on Pick and Mooneyham, who I think if you want to understand, trying to navigate these things, you need to understand Dr. Pick's role through the 60s and 70s and Mooneyham's, because there are ways they agree, and there's ways that they really, the two of them disagreed, but they're both really intelligent, and they don't, like, overstate things about people, and they don't. So, like, if you want to see, like, okay, what is some of the true difference, you, you, those are the guys to look at. But so that, so, so Stan, he's important, because, again, the executive office, he, he is the guy that the executive office becomes what it is now. And when that happened, that was controversial, and you can... Uh, You'd have to read this article, but there were, there were responses written about people like, I don't know how I feel about the executive office, you know, becoming this and doing this. And, um, but Stan was pushing for that, and he was like, hey, this is, this is what should happen. And so he's important, uh, he's important in the 50s because he really helps shape some things that still uh, are going on today. And he's the guy that kind of waded through some battles to make that happen. Uh, so he's really important. He's also important because, um, so I went to Duke and to study with a historian there, and like what we might call left-wing evangelicals, they want to claim Stan because of his humanitarian work, and they want to say like he's one of us, but when you do our research, and this comes up in the book, probably one of the most uh, important nationals was in 1970, and it was about Stan, and it, it, he, he became the center point, and at that national, he went to the microphone, and he uh, and you can go to the historical commission there in Welch College, and you can listen to this meeting. He goes to the microphone, and he outlines, like, I agree with all this stuff in the treatise. And then he ends up being the guy that makes the motion to put us online as believing the plenary verbal inspiration of the Bible. He also, at World Vision, ends up hiring Carl Henry to work for him. And so when left-wing evangelicals want to claim Stan because of his humanitarian work, it's like, ah, wait a minute. Like, this dude believes in the plenary verbal inspiration of the Bible and went online and at his denomination meeting said these things. And he hired Carl F.H. Henry, who, you know, like, is not a liberal. So uh, it was important to me at Duke. Stan became important to me. And that's, that's really how I started reading more about him. I was like, they're claiming this guy. But no, like, <laughs> Fruit Baptists are not going to let somebody be in charge, at least up till now. We're not going to let somebody be in charge who believes those type things. And so that got me interested. So I think it's important. We need to tell more of Stan's story because Stan, uh, as you said in your first meeting, like we don't need to let other people who want to use somebody for an agenda to tell that story. Just let them be who they are. I'll tell you one last thing about Stan. Um, and this is why I think it's important for Fruit Baptists to know about him. World Vision, they, uh, they recorded this. They did a history of the organization. This is, kind of, this is kind of what got him in trouble, too. Stan was the kind of guy, and this led to conflict with him and Dr. Johnson, because Stan was like, Stan's attitude was, if there's an opportunity, we're going to do it, because it might not roll back around. Dr. Johnson, like, he knew how hard it was to get education going and get people on the same page. And so Dr. Johnson's more of this guy of like, we're not going to make a decision that's going to ruin what it has taken us 
a lot, like centuries to make happen in the South. We're not going to do things, you know, where you're just going to blow this up. And Stan's more the guy like, you kidding me? Like this opportunity's right in front of us. Let's do it. So that led to some of the conflict. Okay. When he's at World Vision, he's a Free Will Baptist uh, minister, affiliated with the California Free Will Baptist. I think it's Cambodia, somewhere around Vietnam. I, I think Cambodia. The country's falling apart. The people are starving. The dictators won't let the food get to the people because they don't trust the Anglos because they think, hey, you're working for the CIA or you're here with the American government. Like they, didn't, they, they just didn't trust. And so Stan, they tell this meeting that Stan went to. So he's an Oklahoma kid. He carries a little, little like pocket knife type thing with him. They said everywhere he went, you know, because that's what you guys in the West do. You, you know, you never know when you might need it, right? So he carries this around. And uh, they said he had this little like pen knife thing that he goes to meet with this, these, uh, you know, bureaucrats for these, this dictator and Stan's trying to convince them like, you got to let us get the food to these people. Like these people are starving. We have it. We know that you don't like us and what's happened over here, but like we got, like we're Christians. We're here because we're Christians. We don't have any other agenda other than these people are starving. We got the food. Christian people get this. We want to feed them. And they just weren't having it. They were like, we're not letting you in. And in World Vision, they record that Stan pulled that knife out now, and they tell about this and the thing, like, this is not how diplomatic, this is not how diplomatic negotiations go, okay? Here's this free will bad, this dude. He pulls the knife out. And they said that Stan stuck his hand out in this diplomatic meeting, and he sliced his hand open. And he said, the same blood that flows through here flows through you and flows through those people. Please let us take the food. They let Stan in. Yeah, Stan's the guy, like, you can research it. Vietnam, end of the war, these aid organizations want out. They don't want the dead weight of being over this failing thing. Stan says World Vision's going. Now, that's the good side. There's other stuff, and I talk about, like, there's other things that Stan does that, that you'll find out. You're like, oh, man, like, I don't know. Like, that's, but I say some of that to say, like, I don't know in the modern era that there was a Free Will Baptist who impacted more people globally than Stan. And by hiring Carl F. H. Henry when he left World Vision, there's good evidence that all these, not all, that's way, some of these conservative, Bible-believing pastors in certain other countries around the globe is directly related to Henry going and teaching Bible to these people as an as a employee of World Vision that Stan had hired. So um, I'm a big proponent of like, now he's complex. There are things that pick uh, in our denominational sort of stuff that pick gives a different view that I actually personally, I'll let you know this, I'm a little more sympathetic to how pick thought we ought to do things because I think that's probably smarter and helps us work together and keeps folks from being forced into choices they don't want to make. You know, and as a denomination, we, it'd be better if we didn't force them to make it. So um, anyway, I, another guy. I'm yeah, stop, I think we're about done. You got another question? Yeah. I, I do, or do you want to take questions from the audience? That's, that's um, up to you. I'll take questions. Who's got? Well, if they don't have questions, you can ask me yours. Sure. Anybody got a question? How many more minutes do we have? Fourteen. Fourteen. Okay. Oh, we got time. Okay, we got a, we got a few. All right. Well, I'll I'll just ask you this, and um, it's kind of been along the lines of what we've already talked about, but um, again, kind of the theme is 
what do we need to explore more? What do we need to research on, on more? And so other areas that you think that we need to focus on okay. uh, when it comes to mostly 20th century free will Baptist history. Okay. Um, I think most people would agree with this. Uh, Dr. Johnson is the most uh, influential individual from the time the college starts, 42 through the late 80s, probably. Kevin, you think that's that's not right to you? Okay. So um, Paul writes about Dr. Johnson, and and uh, he does a great job. Like, and Paul did it. I, I we let the writers. Like we, if we found something historically incorrect, we might can like there were some contacts like, hey, actually, you know, Lizzie got on this ship, not that ship. Like we did some of that, but we let people kind of express what they had found through their writing, and so I, I agree with Paul that Dr. Johnson, like his character, is what made him a leader. Like his character is what made. Did any of you go to the Bible College when he was president? You agree with that statement? Yes. Okay. His character is what made him uh, a leader. And, um, and, I mean, he had a huge impact on my parents. So, I mean, I get, I'm getting a little emotional here. But, I mean, he, he just impacted a lot of people and uh, just was a great, uh, great role model. Um, Paul did a thesis on Dr. Johnson for MTSU right after he graduated uh, college. And, uh, he, and he has said this. He's like, you know, I'm right out of college. Like, I don't know what kind of questions to ask him. And, like... Somebody right out of college is not going to ask some of these hard questions about like, hey, so in the 50s when you and Stan were having these disagreements over the cooperative program and like, you know, he didn't know how to ask any of that type stuff and probably wasn't appropriate for him to ask it. Um, but he does in his thing, he starts opening up a little bit about, okay, here's kind of, if we're going to understand ourselves, here's what's going on. And then in the Melvin and O'Donnell chapter, which I wasn't supposed to write O'Donnell, but it, but it ended up having to do it, which turned out to be good because Melvin and O'Donnell also with Dr. Johnson approached some things differently. So we need a critical biography. And by critical, I don't mean critical of Dr. Johnson. I mean like that's asking tough questions and seeing like what's out there and getting multiple perspectives. Because he was so influential, in my opinion, we need a sympathetic biography, which means a writer that recognizes this dude was a man of character and however we talk about him needs to reflect that, but that also deals with some of these questions of why, you know, what was his role in, the, in these conflicts? Because he did such a great job, you know, by the 70s, like nobody wants to say anything bad about Dr. Johnson, you know, nobody wants to do that. But if you talk to guys that dealt with him in the 50s and 60s, they'll open up more about like, oh man, you know, they'll like, you know, they're like, man, Dr. Johnson didn't want to do this. And like when they wanted to move the college, that's in there, that came up. And that was a really hotbed thing at the time. Like, should the college stay here or should it move? And uh, I don't think it's till I came around in the late 2000s that some of those board members that were on there were willing to say like, okay, like here's like some of the tension that was going on in those meetings of him just saying, like, I'm not moving, and some of them felt like they should, and Paul gets into that a little bit. So there's other things that I think we need a critical, Welch needs to do a critical biography of Dr. Johnson, that because they would do it sympathetically, and also lay out, like, all right, here's, here's kind of like what we know. Um, Dr. Pick, who's my, like, if I got a hero, I got to admit, like, Dr. Pick is my hero. Um, so, 
so Johnson is influential for like 40 years, like really influential. Pick has been influential for almost 75 years. If you start digging into when he was moderator, start digging into articles he was writing as a young Welch, uh, Welch professor, you start digging into, uh, you know, the wine issues going on and Pick's trying to hold the ship together, man. And that guy sacrificed, who knows how much he is. The fact that Pick focused on helping Free Will Baptist when he probably honestly, could, well, I know this because Billy Melvin told me, he could have moved on and done other things. We need a critical biography of Pick that is sympathetic but looks at like his role in shaping who we are. And I'll, and I'll just go ahead and say this, and this was in the paper I did with him in Mooneyham. I really believe Pick is the guy, now some letters that we have access to and different things, Pick is the guy who the fundamentalist and the evangelical tension going on in the 70s, Pick's the guy that understood both sides, understood strengths and weaknesses of both sides, and he is the guy that really tries to help, like, how can we focus on being a free will Baptist and not get bogged down in these other things that are going to just tear us apart? Like he, um, so we need for a lot for his theology, for his, if you start really thinking about all the things Dr. Pick has been influential in and over a 75 year period continuing strong today, it's incredible. Um, and so we need, we, we need a serious reflection of his life. Key indigenous overseas leaders as we've become a global movement, I know about the missionaries. I know about a few pastors like um, moms from South Carolina, so Carla Hanna, like through things maybe from Brother Carla. I, might, I know a couple of indigenous leaders' names, but I don't really know about them. So we need some historians that start like documenting the pastors that are rising up in these areas and lay people that aren't pastors but who are influential. Like, who are these brothers? What are they doing? Like, what's their stories? Where are they coming from? What's shaping them? I, I personally find that, you know, I think like that would be uh, a part of the story we need to tell. Connected to that, we need a, um, international missions. Like, uh, again, I'm talking more critical type stuff, understanding like how is the mission approach certain questions. Um, we know some of the controversies, but I don't even just mean controversies. Like how is it approached doing mission work and why have they reached decisions they've made and how is that impacting us today? We need, uh, we need that kind of work. Uh, okay. It's still called Truth and Peace, right? Is that still what it's called? I'm interested in, what that start, in the 80s? It's the 80s that starts? So things I wonder, like, how many people have gone to Truth and Peace that became a missionary or a pastor or still connected to our movement, and Truth and Peace was a key, ro a key role in that? I'd love to see a history of that, of like, what, what role has that played? Connected with that. We need Welch, these folks they send to these camps. We need them to start doing the interviews I did with some of the older guys with camp directors, and we need to find out how many people have been saved in our camps. How many people answered the call to preach in our camps? How many people became missionaries through our... I bet, we'd, I bet we wouldn't be surprised. I, I think we would just start finding out what intuitively we already know, which, man, church camp ministry has probably played a big role. How many people have gotten saved at church camps? Um, and that, you know, talking about Billy, well, we didn't talk about Billy Melvin, but Billy Melvin was a big friend of Stan's and their legacies are connected. You know, I know Melvin in Virginia, the Tidewater, he wasn't there long, but some of the kids that they reached, like just in the two, three years he was there, and you start multiplying that, and it's like, I wonder, like, we need somebody to do a hard history of our church camps and like telling the story. Because church camps also connect us to our revivalistic roots. 
because you got a church camps, that type of preaching is going on a lot of times, you know, um, preaching that's geared towards conversions, and you have people that are at camp thinking for more prolonged periods of time about that than just a Sunday where you show up and then you go back to your normal routine. It's kind of like revivals. You, the revivalistic tradition was making you, for an extended amount of time, think about these important questions and respond to them. Church camps, in some ways, I see them as continuing the revivalistic tradition to young people. Um, so we need to know more about that. I'm interested in seeing the revivalistic tradition. We have camp meetings that go on today that are still a form of unity. There are folks, uh, where I'm at Tennessee, uh, Crossville just had a big camp meeting. There are some people that are here that went to that camp meeting. But there are a lot of Free Will Baptists that those camp meetings are the way that they unify with other Free Will Baptists. Like, there are guys that if we didn't have camp meetings going on, and I don't, I don't typically when I go to camp meetings, um, it's to support the pastor and what he's trying to do. Um, it's not personally something I've ever led or done at a church. But I recognize, like, man, camp meetings are like a way for these guys to get together and feel comfortable with one another and be energetic about the ministry they're trying to do. And so I'm interested in how our camp meeting movement is continuing our revivalistic tradition and the way that that, it's not a national thing, but I think it's one of these things under the surface that actually creates unity among all kinds of guys who otherwise might be disconnected and kind of on their own. So I think like I'm, I'm I think that would, and uh, like I'll just throw one out, like take the Sefner Church in Florida. That combines education with camp meeting, revivalistic tradition. So like in this one local church, and I'm sure there are others, there are some local churches we could look at where revivalism, education, all these things. What are some of our local churches that have brought these things together? Something Del Burden was doing in Virginia, like his story. He really, like Brother Burden, uh, Brother Dwyer writes about him, Brother Burden uh, brought together like these different things going on in his local church. He brought them together and then influenced other people. Uh, and he's a great example of a guy that, you know, he was involved in a lot of controversy like Stan. Um, but like, it's important to understand, well, what was going on behind controversy? Like, what, how did he think? What was he focused on? What was he, let's not just know the controversy, because uh, that's not fair to either one of those guys. Like, let's know more about them, more of their ministry. 